Hi everybody, Mike Wardrock from Encounter Church here, and thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Our prayer is that through this podcast, you could have an encounter with Jesus that will change your life. And now get ready for an inspiring message from our teaching team. Okay, I came into Christmas last year exhausted, just utterly exhausted, which was not great because I came out of three weeks holiday. So I had three weeks holiday in November and I came into Christmas and I was just stuffed. I hadn't got physically sick. In fact, I was probably healthier than usual thanks to lockdown, less germs, handy. Um, I hadn't really had any major battles with mental health. That is a reality for me. I, I have a predisposition towards depression, so I have to monitor that. But that wasn't really what had been happening. But I was just exhausted. And as I looked around and started to have conversations with people, with other pastors, with congregation members, with friends, I started to realise that this seemed to be pretty universal. And it wasn't just the normal, we're getting to the end of the year exhaustion. It was actually an above and beyond, no, like, my mind, body, soul, and heart are all exhausted right now. I am at the end of my tether. And so we began to ask the question, like, well, well why? And the obvious answer is COVID, right? Like, that, that is the obvious answer. COVID has come in. It shook us up. And our 2020, we've just gone, let's get through, and let's hope that when that little one ticks over, everything changes. I, I love the optimism of humanity like that. Numbers, they matter. So the one ticks over, we all hope it changes, and you know, then the capital riots start over in the States, and we're like, wow, it's still going to be a, a bit of a time, apparently. And so we get through to the end of the year exhausted, and, and people are desperately going, let me, let me grab a week of holiday here, let me grab a weekend away here, let me do what I can to get refreshed, because we know that every year, the advantage is we start fresh, the disadvantage is we look ahead and we go, oh, there's 12 more months until we can play this game again. So if we want renewal in our lives, something powerful is going to have to shift. It's not going to be enough just to go away for a holiday. We are actually going to need something bigger than that to move. And so we come to this point at the start of 2021 in February where we go, okay, if we're looking down the barrel towards December and we all have COVID hangover, like the after effects, the PTSD of the last year we've been experiencing. And I think honestly, church, there's probably a little bit of that for a lot of us. It's just a little bit of PTSD from the last year and, and the way we've managed that. Then we've got to ask ourselves, where do we put our strength? Where do we put the affections of our heart? Where do we trust in in order to get through 2021? And I want to make a really obvious pastoring preposition that it's Jesus, but I, I want to say this, what you need to do in 2021, in February, right now, is submit your entire lives to Jesus. If you want to see that kind of renewal, if you want a strength to get through the year that's not just going to go, I got through, or I'm not just sticking my head down and getting on with the job and, and hoping that no one's going to ask me any questions, but actually to go, I'm going to be resilient. I'm going to get through to the other side of this year with joy with joy, church, then you're going to have to rely on Jesus. It is not going to be enough to do it on your own. So we're going to go through these four weeks. We can start today with the heart. And the reason is the heart is the most important one to go through. But before we do that, let's talk about renewal as a general idea and why we need it. 
Uh, so we came up with a series named The Renewed Normal because after COVID, we've come through and I got so sick of hearing the phrase, the new normal, right? Just bandied about by cultural commentators and reporters and everybody when we couldn't be bothered answering questions properly. We're like, well, it's just the new normal, isn't it? Can I just go and do something else now? <laughs> you know? And so I, I thought about this and I thought COVID doesn't get to define normal for followers of Jesus. It doesn't. We are defined not by the situation we're in, but by the person we follow. And so for followers of Jesus, it's not about a new normal. It's about a renewed normal. It's about pursuing the renewal of all creation that we call the kingdom of God. Now, when we do this, we run into a key problem because the kingdom of God is a vision of the future. And there are competing visions of the future. Mark Sayers calls the vision of the future that's happening outside the church the secularist renewal myth. The secularist renewal myth. And here's what he means. Every single person in the world has a vision of the future where the future gets better for all creation. We're moving, we're progressing onwards. But most of us, our vision of the future is this. I get what I want. And at the same time, the rest of the world gets better because I'm selfish, but I'm not totally selfish. I do want other people to have a good time and good lives as well. So the the world will move on and we're going to make things better. And in the end, it's going to be better. The life is going to be better for everyone. We just assume that progress means better for everyone. So here's what we do. We put our trust in political systems, in social structures, in economic powers and forces, and we decide that those things, if we follow them to the end of themselves, will lead us to the promised land. They'll lead us to utopia. So two classic examples of this from the 20th century are communism and capitalism. These are systems that have been put in place and people said, if we buy into this, we will reach utopia. And guess what? Didn't work out so well. Capitalism has lasted a little bit longer than traditional communism, but the capital riots are probably not a great indication of where capitalism has taken a nation. We need to ask ourselves, do these systems actually work? These systems we put our trust in, do they actually work? Because here's what they do. They set up this overarching utopia. It's a vision of the Garden of Eden, but in our own image. In the way we want it. God has structured it. He said, there is a garden. There is a paradise. There is an end point to creation. And that is to get back to this paradise. But we go, great idea. Let's take that and run with it. We've got it from here. And the secularist renewal myth is this. I want the kingdom of God with no king. The kingdom of God without God. We are going to build a kingdom that looks like the utopia that we want. It's a vision of the life we want that is best for us. But if you disagree with it, you're wrong and you're out. You're either in or you're out in the secular renewal myth. And as a result, we have these culture wars. And we have all been watching these culture wars and participating in them, hopefully not dramatically, but whether we like it or not, we get dragged into them. And that is because there's not one secularist renewal myth. There's different ones, different political visions, different social vision, different economic visions. And so they split people apart and tear them away from one another because everyone becomes their own God in this vision. But in the kingdom of God, there is already a king and his name is Jesus. And so in the vision that God has for us, we don't decide our own forces and go, this is the way and this will save us. We say, no, 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 Jesus will save us. 
We are building his kingdom. How do we live that out? So we're flipping the order of these things. You with me so far? All right. Let's go. Let's get to the heart. Trying to fast forward. I I pre-apologize for Thevin for this because I think I'm going to skip through a lot of the slides and things and just just get to the heart of what we need to talk about. Because the heart is the most important thing. Now, we get to the heart and and we talk about personal renewal and we talk about vision. Let's talk about the Shema. Um, The Shema is this Hebrew word that means to to hear or to listen. And it's the, the first part of the most important Hebrew prayer. Now, you, you would be familiar with it, but you wouldn't be that familiar with it because we skip over it in the New Testament. So in the New Testament, I just skipped over it then on purpose when I read from Mark. So the teacher asked Jesus, what's the most important commandment? And Jesus starts by saying, the most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That is the Shema. It is to say there's one God over all of heaven and earth, and our job is to follow God and to point to God and live in a way that declares the glory of God and lives it out. And then he goes on to say, and the great commandment to do that is to love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, uh, soul, and strength. So the Shema reminds us of who we are. We are the people of God. We are made to worship one God. That is, we are not made to worship idols or pagan gods or even to look at ourselves and go, girl, you're a domestic goddess. You know, none of this. We, even when we use that language, we're automatically shifting ourselves into the position of God. There's only one, and our job is to work out how to live out following God. So that is the challenge. So when we get to the human heart and we ask ourselves, why does the human heart matter so much? Why is this the first one we look at? Well, because the human heart is the seat of all our decision-making. And when you go to it from a biblical perspective, you find out the Bible actually has quite a bit to say about the human heart. Here are just a few things. Psalm 51 says that the sacrifice of God is a broken and contrite heart. Proverbs 3 tells us to trust in the Lord with all our heart. In Jeremiah, we hear that God searches the heart. In Matthew, we hear Jesus say, the blessed are the pure in heart. In Luke, Jesus says that where our treasure is, that is where our heart is. At Pentecost, Peter preaches, and those who hear are cut to the heart with personal conviction. In 1 Timothy, Paul says our aim is love from a pure heart. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, Samuel goes to anoint one of David's brothers, king of Israel, and God says no, reminding him that humans see what is visible, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so really clearly there, God is saying to Samuel, I get it. You're automatically looking at the external features. You're looking at what you see. I'm looking deeper. I'm looking at the heart. And finally, Proverbs 4.23 states so powerfully, so accurately, that we are to guard the heart above all else, for it is the source of life. This is true literally, spiritually, emotionally, and practically. For the Jewish people, the heart was the center of their inner self. It governed their thoughts and emotions. So when the Jewish people consider the heart, and when you hear Jesus talking about the heart, when you hear the heart, particularly in the Old Testament, they are talking about every kind of thought and feeling you can have is coming from the heart. So when they say guard the heart, they're saying guard your inner self with everything you have. But in Greek, we get it slightly differently. The Greek uh, split this up. They talk about the heart as the seat of the feelings and the mind as the seat of the thoughts. The way that we do right now, we come from that Greek thought line. So that's why we have mind as a separate week to talk about next week. Now, in Greek, the word for heart is cardia. And you might be familiar with cardia, especially if you've studied medicine in any way, from the term cardiology or cardiac arrest. It's become a medical term coming from that Greek term cardia, which means heart. 
Now, cardiology is important because cardiology is the study and treatment of, of heart disorders. And that's Jesus' game, you know? That's what God is all about, the study and treatment of heart disorders. That's why in 1 Samuel he says, no, 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 I'm looking at the heart. It doesn't really matter what they look like. Uh, in the end, King David is brought along, the smallest of the children, the puniest, the one who's been given the worst jobs, because God's looking at something inside. He's looking at the heart. God is all about cardiology. God is always doing open heart surgery on you and I. So we can see those are just a, a small snippet of Bible verses about the heart. God has always been primarily concerned with the character of the human heart. One of the great differences between every other religion and every other system you can work under is that in every other religious system or economic or political or social system, you've got to earn your own salvation. You've got to go do it yourself. If you want something done, you've got to do it yourself, right? If you want to, earn, if you want to get something in life, you've got to work hard. How many of us know by this point in human history that working hard is not enough? Go and ask a migrant family who has worked tirelessly to barely live above the poverty line. Working hard is not enough. But in Christianity, our hearts incline to the God who offers us a gift of grace. And then when we say, well, what do we have to do? And God's answer is, well, nothing. You don't have to do anything except receive it. Uh, your lives matter, so do I want you to live from the overflow of that? Absolutely. If you're not living from the overflow of that, does that show what's going on in your heart? Yes, it does. Not maybe, yes, it does. But does he make you do anything? Absolutely not. And it is the essential difference between Christianity and every other religious system. Only in Christianity does God offer you grace. It's a free gift. So hear this, church. If you cannot get your hearts right, you will not see personal renewal. And I think over my time as a pastor, uh, youth pastor, associate pastor, lead pastor, every adjective pastor, this, this has been the thing. If I have a conversation with somebody and they are hard-hearted, it just doesn't really matter what else I do. It doesn't really matter how wise my words are. In some ways, it doesn't even matter how hard I pray because if that person is so, if in effect, praying themselves through their heart posture not to change, it's very, very difficult to change that. I want to encourage you as we go into this last part of the sermon, where's your heart at today? Maybe as we were talking about the political, economic and social structures people put their trust in for affirmation and affection and life, something's triggering and you need to repent already. There's something actually hitting you in the heart this morning already. But let's just kick on. Because from our hearts we love. The affections of our hearts show us what we worship, and what we worship shows us who our God really is. And that's why Jesus says where your heart is is where your treasure is. Because where your affections are is where your attention is, and where your attention is shows you what you worship. What you worship is what your God is. Right? So church, for you to see personal renewal... Here is the most important thing you need to know. Make Jesus the affection of your heart. Don't make Jesus one thing in your life. Don't make church one thing in your life. Don't make church the affection of your heart. Church is, in effect, the second great commandment. The first commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your mind, your soul, your heart, your strength. The second, which is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. When we gather as church, that's what that is. Not exclusively, but that's part of that. 
But that is not what we fall in love with. We fall in love with Jesus. And when we allow Jesus to be the direction of our affection, that's when we see renewal. So if you can't make Jesus the affection of your heart, you're not going to see it. You'll wonder why there's an emptiness to your faith and your life. At some point, you'll leave church and either you'll say you were burned by the church, but what you really mean is that we kept asking you to change your heart and you wouldn't do it. Or you'll leave and you'll say, ah, yeah, it wasn't for me. They were just kind of, yeah, they're, they're just doing something else. It's just kind of not my thing. And, it's like, and the same thing is there. It's, it means that you won't transform your hearts. That's not the same as your preferences or your interests, but it's your heart to listen, to be teachable. I had a conversation with somebody in the last week, uh, which was so encouraging. It's somebody I've been praying for, and uh, I had a conversation about uh, effectively their life choices. And before I could get to the part where I challenged them, they jumped in and they're like, oh, yeah, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. No, no, no. That's, that's not what I'm about. I'm like, oh, I haven't even said anything yet. They're like, yeah, no, no, this is just not how I want to be doing it. It's not how I want to be living life. Actually, Jesus is more important to me. Then I thought, I want to get transformed. And I was like, this is, this is what it means. This is what it looks like when your heart is transformed. Um, it, it's powerful. So we make Jesus the affection of our hearts and we begin to see renewal. Let's dig into culture for a moment. Because the heart that is so important to our life is under constant cultural attack. And in the West, in Australia, we are children of the Enlightenment. That means we've come through this age of the Renaissance and of reason and, and of, of big thinking. And we now think that we are enlightened, wise, reasoned people. I never forget my, my mate Tex, who, who's up here playing bass and singing this morning, he, saying that before he came to Christ, he's a relatively new Christian, uh, before he came to Christ, he used to think of himself as a man of science. But when he asked himself, what does that mean? He didn't really know. <laughs> this is what it means to be children of the Enlightenment. We believe we are people of great reason and intellect, but we are not. That doesn't mean you can't have reason or intellect. We're people of emotion. And if you say, well, some people are emotional, I'm not that. Okay, let's talk to some marketing executives. Marketing executives don't, go, don't sit around a table in a boardroom and go, how can we appeal to people's intellect this morning? No, 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 no. They're pulling on the emotions. This is why every time you go to a supermarket, there are like quick things to buy, you know, impulse buys as you are exiting. And we buy them because we're like, yep, that kid's going to see a chocolate bar and want it. That adult's going to see a chocolate bar and want it. You know, this is the sort of thing we do. We impulse buy. That's the reason pop-up ads come on and smart ads, right? Terrifyingly smart ads on our browsers popping up. You talk about shoes once and immediately ASOS is there like, hey, how about it? You know, it's terrifying. <laughs> Emotions are the reason that as far as I can tell from the ads I watch, the big four banks are only concerned with our families. Right? Like from the ads I watch, there are only do children work at Combank? I don't know. Like it appears that way every time I watch a, a Commonwealth Bank ad, I'm like, what what is going on here? Why are there just trucks moving around the country? Why is it always finishing at golden hour in a farm somewhere? Like I don't understand. Is this what the banking system is about? No, of course not. But if our emotions can be triggered into going, yeah, that that actually hits me emotionally, I think that's beautiful. Maybe I'll remember Combank next time. You know, this is what happens. Our emotions drive us. We are an incredibly emotional generation of people. I, we are always emotional. Advertising has been hitting that for at least 100 years with that stuff. But 
we are particularly emotional. This is why culture wars are getting us so big. This is why outrage culture exists. Because now when our emotional button is being pressed from the other side, we don't just go, well, I disagree with that rationally and let me provide a rational response. We're immediately like, you don't know anything you want. You know, keyboard warriors coming out in full. We get so mad about this because the emotions are what's being pressed. We are not people of the mind. We use our mind, and we'll talk more about that next week, but we are people primarily the heart. We are people of affection. We are people of emotion. Nobody has ever come to me and said, I'm so distressed this week. I've just had my mind broken. Because it's our hearts governing our affections, and emotionalism wins. And emotionalism especially wins in a fake news world because we don't know what to trust. So when we don't know what to trust, we trust our gut and our emotions, but our emotions lie to us. We know they do. We know they're manipulated. Um, People have often said that the job of an advertising agency basically is to make you feel like you lack. However we lack, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter for whatever product it is. That's the job. It's pulling on the heartstrings, pulling on our emotions. So how do we work out what's true in an era of emotion? Well, primarily we work it out by looking at our personal experiences and saying, what have I experienced? And does it hit with my emotions? And if it does, then that is reality. But that's subjective, isn't it? What do we do when we meet someone else's personal experience and it's vastly different? Oh, uh, well, I'm right and you're wrong. And the other person says, well, I'm right and you're wrong. And again, outrage culture, culture wars, it continues. So in this equation, emotions plus personal experience is reality. But the danger here is we are unable to work out what reality is and isn't, and it's not governed by God. If you are people of God, if you're followers of Jesus' church, then the, the, the vision we are building towards is the kingdom of God, not just what makes us feel good, not just what structure works for us in this given moment. So we've got to ask ourselves, not what do we want, but God, what are you calling us towards? And part of that is trusting that what God's calling us towards is a vision that's better than anything we can put together, church. It is what we are pursuing because God's desires for us are better than our own. God's prayers for you and plans for you are bigger, stronger, more vibrant, more, more high than anything we could possibly have for ourselves. That's what God is doing in our midst. So how do we work out whether our experiences are true? How do we govern our emotions? Well, Scripture is the key. The Bible is our key to govern and discern the wisdom of our emotions. The Bible won't tell you how to feel, but the Bible will tell you what to do with those feelings. So as we come to Scripture, we are reminded, not all that gently, that our hearts are fickle but we're shown how to navigate it. And when we have the courage to come to God's word and let it govern our emotions rather than our emotions governing it, we find ourselves transformed. So my favorite example of this is Philemon. If you're familiar with Philemon, really little letter in the New Testament written by Paul um, to a former slave owner named Philemon, and he's sending it back with the slave called Onesimus. Onesimus has run away from his owner, has become a Christian, and Paul sends him back. Now, if we read this at face value with emotion... We go, how can Christianity condone slavery? How can it? I can't believe Christianity condones slavery. Now, that is a a very cheap reading, and I'm being generous by saying that. Because when you read it, you realize that what it is actually all about is Christian unity and the way that when we become followers of Jesus, our allegiances change and the choices we make change, and that bears a heavy cost. What Paul's actually doing in Philemon is taking both the slave and the former slave owner and putting on them 
making them accountable for their own decisions and going, hey, slave owner, slave, don't run away. Hey, slave owner, you shouldn't have slaves anymore. This is your brother in Christ. Discuss. (laughs) And then he sends them on their way. It's an extraordinary letter, really worth digging into. But if we read that at face value, we get outraged and say Christianity supports slavery. No, it doesn't. That's insane. Christians abolished slavery. But this is what we do when we let our emotions govern scripture instead of the other way around. You hear me? Good, good. Okay. Because in 2021 culture, the loudest, angriest voice determines truth, and we can't let that happen. Do you want the angriest person in the room to determine what is true? I don't. So all of that brings us to today's scripture, the road to Emmaus. I promise I'm more than halfway through, just in case you're wondering. In Luke, because usually that's kind of in the middle. In Luke 24, we see two of Jesus' disciples, Cleopas and his wife Mary, deep in discussion as they head from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and they are crushed. They are destroyed, crippled, afflicted in the heart because Jesus is dead. Their hope, their Savior, their Messiah is dead. And as if that wasn't bad enough, then they've had this rumor from these women who have, who have met him at the tomb, and we all know, we, please be clear, we meaning first century AD men and women, we all know that women aren't reliable witnesses, again, first century AD people, not me personally, not my opinion. But that was the opinion. They're not reliable witnesses. How can we trust that? They're saying Jesus has been resurrected. We, nobody else has seen him. What is going on? So they walk and they're downcast and they're crippled. They're brokenhearted. And in the midst of this mess, just like he did at the wedding in Cana in Galilee, Jesus shows up. And just like at the wedding, he's there before they know he's there. And he's walking alongside them. He's like, hey, what's going on? What's, uh, what, you, what you're so upset about? It's a, I don't know if this is just because this is how I think. Actually, it definitely is. But I just imagine Jesus being like, kind of like, eh, yeah, what you're so sad about? Just like, I know. I actually know because it's me. But I, I'm Jesus. And yeah. I won't tell you yet. It's fine. And, and so they look at him and they go, are, are, you, are you nuts? This is the only thing anybody's talking about. The, the only thing anybody's talking about is this death of Jesus. It is the most important thing going on in our world. And so they explain that to him and they go, so we are brokenhearted. And Jesus brings the scriptures to them as a gift. And you've got to see what's happening here. The presence of God with the word of God is coming together on the road to Emmaus. So the presence of God is there in the incarnate, resurrected Jesus. And the word of God, he says, how slow you are to believe all this stuff that is in the scriptures, that is in the Old Testament. And he begins to explain using Moses and the prophets and all of the Torah, all of the law, all of the histories, all of the major and minor prophets to say, all of this points to what Jesus had to go through. And all of it points to the idea that, of course, he's resurrected. And as they walk along, something's happening in their hearts. In fact, it's stirring. Their hearts are beginning. Hope is beginning to enter their hearts again. Maybe that's you this year. You've you've come in, you're afflicted in heart. You need hope to enter your heart again as Jesus walks with you. And so Jesus is walking with them. And they, they do what we need to do when we have this moment. When we come to this moment and we don't know what Jesus is doing, but something is happening. They say, stay with us. Share a meal with us. Church, what you need to do when you're in your lowest moment, but you don't know what's going on, and something is stirring and you don't know how to describe it, you, you don't know how to feel it, you don't know how to control it, just ask Jesus to be with you. This is what they did on the road to Emmaus. And so Jesus comes and he sits at the table with them and he breaks bread. And in that moment, as he reenacts the Last Supper, 
as he shows them, you're my disciples, something clicks and they recognize him for who he is. And he vanishes. And they say this, didn't our hearts burn within us when he was speaking? Because the presence of God will do that. Church, let me give you three things that you need to know about to see renewed hearts. Because what happens to the disciples on the road to Emmaus is they let their emotions and their experience be subject to the scriptural teaching that Jesus brings. The presence of God and the word of God are over the top of the emotions and experiences. It's very, very important. Your emotions will change. Your experiences will differ from other people. The word of God is unchanging. The presence of God is unchanging. That's why we make that our truth. So here are three things you need to see right now as you ask the question, is my heart prepared for renewal today? The first is this. Can your heart be changed? Is it humble? In Ezekiel chapter 36, the prophet Ezekiel is hearing from God and God says, I'm going to give my people a heart of flesh to replace their heart of stone. You need to have the ability to be teachable, to be humble, to be changed. The main reason people don't encounter God in power is because they are unwilling to break their preconceptions of what God is allowed to be and do. God is infinite and all-powerful. He does not require your rules. But if you are going to put yourself in a little box and leave God on the outside, God's there knocking and you're just hardening your heart. This is what Ezekiel was talking about. He said, the heart of stone needs to go, a heart of flesh needs to come, a living, breathing heart that will listen, that will actually have an emotional, affectionate response to God. Our relationship with God is not purely designed to be reasonable because we are not reasonable. So are you humble? Are you teachable? When's the last time you let somebody correct you? When's the last time you came before God and you sensed God saying something and you actually said, I think this is God, as opposed to, no, 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 no. What happens when God tries to talk to you? That's the first thing. Can you be changed? Can you be humbled? That is the biggest block between you and a thriving spiritual life. Can your heart be taught? Here's the second thing. Can your heart be convicted? At Pentecost, the power of God comes down so profoundly that the entire city is going, what is happening here? Something important is happening. People are speaking in different languages. And Peter preaches, and they've seen the power of God, but people have seen the power of God and walked away. What happens to the crowd at Pentecost is they see the power of God, they hear the word of God, and they are convicted in their hearts. Their hearts are laid bare. They're already humble. The power of God has exposed them to be ready to be humble and teachable. And now they're convicted. They're convicted of their sin. They're convicted of their brokenness. And they say, what do we need to do? Church, when's the last time you were down on your knees before God? There is a reason we kneel in worship. And part of it is to go, you are God and I am not. And it's that simple. And in humility, I just kneel before you and say, thank you for all the gifts you've given me. Lord, I'm longing to hear your voice. Speak to me. Speak to me. How's your desperation level for God this morning, church? How's your willingness to see a miracle happen in front of you and transform your life? What I love about this church, one of the many things is that people's lives change here. 
People come in, they've never known Jesus and God meets them in power and they give their lives to Jesus. And that not only transforms their life, it lifts the water level for everybody else because we're going, yes, another miracle is happening in front of us. God is real. He's working in my life. He's working in your life. He's trying to convict you. Are you humble? Can you hear God? Can you be convicted by God? Cardiology, remember church? Are you up for open heart surgery? When's the last time you let God convict you of your sin? And here's the third one. In Luke 24, once the disciples had the Bible explained to them, their hearts burn within them. They tangibly feel the presence of God and they feel it before they know it. Before they realize Jesus is there, their hearts burn within them. Something happened. And they said, didn't our hearts burn within us? The final sign of a renewed heart, first of all, is, is that it can be, it's humble, it's teachable. The second is that it can be convicted. And the third is that once you've let yourself go through that, it burns with love for Jesus. Because Jesus becomes the seat of your affections. Your affections are no longer primarily on the person you're in a relationship with. Best wedding speeches you ever hear are the people who promise to love love you second above every third person in life. Do you know what I mean? Because they're promising to love Jesus first. Because when they do that, you actually find the relationship is stronger. But most of us make idols out of our spouses, out of our fiancés, out of our significant others. You've got to put that to death. You've got to put Jesus as your love. Most of us have systems we like to put in place to control Jesus. But Jesus says, no. Put your affections on me and let me lead you. You know, on the road to Emmaus, the beautiful thing is, as Jesus walks with them, it looks like they're leading him, right? They're going where they want to go. But as Jesus explains everything to them and shares a meal with them and reveals his presence to them, their immediate response is to turn and run back where they came from. To go, I've actually got some work to do back where I came from. And some of you this morning, as we come to a close... God is calling you to do some work in your past. You've got to run back where you came from, not to live there, but to let your heart be healed by Jesus. You've got to humble your heart. Let it be softened and ready to be taught. You've got to allow yourself to be convicted by the word of God speaking to your spirit. And then you've got to put your affections on Jesus and let him take you through the process of renewal. Because in order to be renewed... We've got to sort of restart. We've got to reboot our operating system. We've got to start fresh and look towards God's vision of the future and not our own. So church, here's my final question for you this morning. Are you ready to put the affections of your heart towards Jesus? If you're not, you don't have to. But you will not know the fullness of God in the way you want. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of sick of, of talking around this stuff. If, if you want the fullness of God, if you want God to show up in power in your life, step out in faith. If you want God to do a work of power in you, if you want him to change your circumstances, you have to be humble. You have to be desperate. You have to be confessing. You have to be willing to let Jesus change you, not me, not the people around you. Jesus, speaking in the silence of your heart. Thanks so much for listening. I pray that you were able to hear from God in a fresh way today. We would love to hear from our listeners. 
To connect with us or to financially support the work of Encounter, please jump on our website, encounteradelaide.com.au. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to jump onto iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast provider and give us a rating and review. Or share this message on your social media accounts and tag us at Encounter Adelaide. God bless. Have an amazing week.